This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Mr. Campbell, um, you also talked about the jump from 3.5, I think, uh, yes, you you jumped from 3.5 million to $5 million um, spent on uh, copyright material. Okay, can you tell me uh, where majority of this fund's going to? I'll defer to my colleague Leslie. Okay, great, Leslie, thank you. Thank you. My answer is very similar to to Donna's from Dalhousie and and similar to to universities across across the country. We're paying the vast majority of the the millions that we spend in library acquisitions resources to licensed electronic products academic publishing so these these are materials that are that that are authored from within our institutions and and across the world as as well they're they're international publishers there they are packages uh, the very significant size ones we buy like others through CRKN and you you heard from. But would you agree with um, Donna that uh, that's where those five publishers are getting majority of the um, the fund associate with the with the copyright? Yeah, that's that's where most of our our money goes. We we at, at UNB we spend about a half a million dollars on print resources. Mm-hmm. In in addition to our to our licensed mm-hmm. electronic licensed products. That exchange takes us back to the Canadian Copyright Review in 2018, as MPs questioned educational institutions and librarians about their spending practices and the impact of digital licensing and fair dealing. The evidence demonstrated significant increases in spending, and despite pressure from some author lobby groups, the committee rejected new limits on educational fair dealing and actually called for fair dealing expansion to ensure greater flexibility. Yet increased spending in a nonpartisan parliamentary study didn't stop some groups from continuing to lobby for changes to Canada's copyright law. The Canadian Federation of Library Associations, the CFLA, recently spoke out on the copyright issue in an effort to set the record straight. Victoria Owen has been a leading expert on copyright in libraries for decades, serving as special advisor to the VP Dean on Information Accessibility at University of Toronto Scarborough, and as an information policy scholar practitioner in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. She is also the chair of the CFLA Copyright Committee, and she joins me on the podcast to talk about its statement and copyright law in Canada. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for for coming on. You know, you've been someone who has been deeply involved in copyright and the copyright law debate now for many, many years. And I have to say that that I think that debate's become a bit strange in recent years. You know, on the one hand, Supreme Court of Canada has been very consistent with repeated cases affirming the importance of balance and user rights. Digital licensing has exploded over the last decade with massive investments, especially by the education community in paying for works through licenses. And so you'd think that would be a good news story. But certainly there have been copyright lobby groups that continue to claim unfairness. They'll point to legislative reforms, to those Supreme Court decisions, or a shift in licensing practices. I think it's fair to say that that education and the library community have been relatively quiet 
in recent years on this. I mean, there's lots of issues to focus in and from a copyright perspective. People are licensing. People are ensuring that there's accessibility to works, especially uh, during a pandemic when it was challenging. Uh, but more recently, the Canadian Federation of Library Associations spoke out on the issue. And I wanted to, to bring you on to talk a bit about what the CFLA is and why it spoke out and what people, I think, need to know about this copyright debate that, that may heat up in the coming months. So, so why don't we start with explaining who is the, the CFLA and why it decided to go public on copyright? Okay, let's start with the CFLA. So the CFLA is the Canadian Federation of Library Associations, and it is the united national voice of Canada's library community. It's our largest national library organization, and it represents the interests of libraries of all types. So public libraries, academic libraries, special libraries, uh, school libraries, and at the provincial, regional, and national library associations, they too are members. And also we, are, um, we represent libraries that are located in cultural heritage and memory institutions. So CFLA advocates nationally and internationally on library issues that cross all the that cross the library sectors and are in the interests of Canadians. And we're particularly interested in users' rights and copyright. So going back to, to where, where, where we are and why we are here, I think um, Parliament and the Supreme Court have charted new territories in these users' rights that we're very concerned with. And uh, we, in 2012, we added education, parody, and satire to fair dealing purposes. And in 2016, we added, uh, we amended Section 32 of the Copyright Act to add limitations and exceptions in alignment with Canada's ratification of the Marrakesh Treaty. So over this time, this, and before this time, actually dating from uh, 2004, the Supreme Court has interpreted fair dealing in a much broader way in a long series of decisions, starting with that CCH one, and as we'll talk about probably over the course of our conversation um, with the, the 2021 York University case. So for the most part, these are really good news stories for Canadians because they underpin access, users' rights. And the courts have sided with the users in many of these cases and limited those attempted overreaches by rights holders and, and their lobby groups. And why we find ourselves today and here and why we're speaking out is because those rights holder groups have reacted against these changes with a relentless lobby uh, for legislative reform, especially related to the educational exception. And, you know, Access Copyright, a, a ripographic rights organization in Canada, went so far as to link it, in my view, without evidence to its recent staff layoffs. But just as a, as a word of explanation, the work that librarians do for our professional organizations like CFLA are sort of not the main event. They, we work off the side of our desks for these things, and we're not paid lobbyists. But and I know you know this, but what has galvanized us on this matter is the utter inability of library organizations to penetrate the media, to articulate the position of libraries and educational institutions, and to counter that those positions that the rights holders have been presenting. So our work is being uh, characterized as legalized theft, mass systemic free copying of creators, um, in the educational sector. And these opinions that are 
These are opinions from journalists like Kate Taylor in the Globe and Mail, who is also a novelist and a rights holder, and Hugh Stevens, who's a former Time Warner publishing executive and a defender of of rights holders. And it's singularly one-sided. So libraries and educational institutions have felt to be the target of this campaign of misinformation. And we have been defendants in numerous legal disputes. So we wanted to counter the narrative and present facts and positions relating to libraries, archives, and the public interest. And so when we couldn't get CFLA's response to this barrage uh, in the news media, we decided to release our own statement on our website. Okay. I, I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack there. And I, I, let me start by saying, I'm glad that, that you spoke out. Uh, I think there's a, a real need to, to inject, I think, some facts into much of the information that is often uh, raised in the, the public debate around this. So you've made the case that, that you've been unfairly attacked uh, at times by some of the individuals or particularly some of the groups. Now, it seems to me that there are several connected issues and you've started to highlight them a little bit. Let's unpack them a little bit more here with where copyrights stands. Can you talk a bit more about what the Supreme Court of Canada, why don't we start there, what the Supreme Court of Canada in particular has said with respect to copyright and, as you mentioned, balance and fair dealing? The starting point really is what copyright law is intended to do in terms of balancing the interests of the content creators with the public interest in providing access to content. So we have from 2002, an excellent quote from Justice Binney that talks about this, um, that the, the, the copyright owner um, and the public interest, though, so that balance between those two is really the objective of the copyright statute. And so it is about promoting the public interest in the dissemination of knowledge and and obtaining, so on the one hand, dissemination of knowledge, and on the other hand, a just reward to the creator. And he writes that the proper balance among these and other public policy objectives lies not only in recognizing the creator's rights, but in giving due weight to their limited nature. And I think this is where the role of libraries fits in. So the role of libraries, archives and museums and educational institutions is intrinsically entwined in the public interest in copyright because we inhabit this societal role that's quite unique and a public policy space that's quite unique. And that is to provide equitable access to culture and information and the preservation of knowledge. And in this regard, Canada is not unique because legislatures around the world recognize the special functions of libraries and they have exceptions and limitations for libraries to deliver on government and public policy objectives around research, innovation, preservation, and lifelong learning. So balance and copyright is the weighing of those competing rights and interests. And as we know, they're elusive, they're flexible and pliable and 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 that's where our role is in, in looking at it's not an equilibrium of law of opposites it's not a static balance but it's a continuous adjustment of different inputs like social cultural economic legal inputs you know for example we can talk about what happened during the pandemic when all the libraries that were closed and we had uh, we had print books on the shelves that nobody could use so that we we decided on using controlled digital lending. We scanned print books 
and circulated them in a in in the same ratio that we had them in the print in the print version. So it's not normally we wouldn't do that. Normally that's a a creator right that reproduction. But in certain circumstances it's a fair dealing use. So so that's what I'm saying it's it's a balance and it's flexible and it's 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 static. And I and I think all of us need to keep in mind and I stress this to my colleagues that libraries and educational institutions are the organizations that deliver on the public interest on behalf of the government. And so our role as libraries is to provide reasonable access to those works for the benefit of society. So, you know, what is the public interest in copyright? I would say that it's expressed in fair dealing provisions, the user's rights and other limitations and exceptions that, you know, that's unsubstantial uses, all the fair dealing provisions, uh, the library and archive and museums exceptions, and the the exception for creating accessible works. So in light of that, so those are user rights. The great majority of the rights in copyright belong to the creator or the rights holder. However, what Binney has said and, and the CCH case reiterated is that they are limited and they are offset by users' rights. And and for us to make use of those, we no permission or authorization is required. When I look back at, at what the Supreme Court said, and they began with the CCH case, which is a, a legal publisher uh, against the Law Society of Upper Canada, the, the great library of the Law Society, um, they that case in 2004 disturbed the status quo with regards to fair dealing. And the rights holders, I believe, have been trying to reclaim ground that they perceive that they lost in CCH and in those subsequent cases. So for CCH, it, it gave us, uh, it gave librarians uh, a great deal to, to consider as we, as we work through the copyright implications in our work. And, that uh, the quotation that I made earlier about uh, from Justice Binney in the the Tiberish case is that the recognizing that that limited nature of those creator rights, and then the CCH case goes on to say that users' rights and exceptions to copyright are more properly understood as users' rights. So that's a, that was a big change. That was a, a positive articulation of users' rights. But they also gave us a framework for fair dealing analysis. So they gave us uh, six factors in the CCH case that we can use when we're doing an analysis on fair dealing. And it's not prescriptive. It's just really helpful. We don't need to use all of them or uh, they, don't, they might not all apply in an analysis, but they are there. And they have helped us enormously in managing um, the users' rights and 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 the exceptions and limitations that we normally use for libraries, archives, and museums and educational institutions. So there have been a number of cases since CCH that go back and refer to CCH. So that foundation is is there. And in the 2021 court case with York University, there was a, a part of that case dealt with fair dealing. And, and the court made clear that it was really a user-centric right. And that's, that's the lens through which we, do, we need to do the analysis. It's, it's about what the benefits are to society as a whole or to that user. 
there's a lot there. Thank you, Victoria. The, you, <laughs> you've got, there's a lot to say. I mean, you're literally walking us through 20 years now of Supreme Court jur, Supreme Court jurisprudence that has has moved in in a in a consistent direction, really throughout, uh, recognizing the importance of balance, the limitations in terms of uh, creator rights. Not to say that they aren't essential; they are an essential part, but they are essential as part of a, a broader whole with that balance and then how that begins to play out as you suggest in cases like cch later in the access copyright alberta case and most recently in the york university case shows that there has really been this consistency in outcome from the court but i think it's notable that some of the groups that are arguing for reform choose to focus not so much on those decisions and when they do that there's been a tendency even to mischaracterize them but the not so much on the jurisprudence but instead on reforms that took place in 2012 suggest that somehow that is responsible for where we're at today can you talk a, a little bit about copyright reform and and what impact do you think it's had well i think this question uh goes to the heart of the issue so in 2012, and you're you're right about that. <laughs> is it the is it the Copyright Modernization Act or is it the jurisprudence? And it, it's hard to tell um, what what the culprit is, or maybe they're they're both the culprits in the in the eyes of the rights holders. Um, so in 2012, Parliament passed the Copyright Modernization Act, and that happened years after review and extensive consultation and public engagement, and that. Uh, and man, those um, that Copyright Modernization Act added some positive changes, such as user-generated content, time and format shifting, the and the expansion of fair dealing to include parody and satire. So, and education. So that was; those were significant. Um, also significant was the digital lock provision that I considered to be a massive and profound loss for all Canadians because many of the gains that were achieved in the bill were subsequently uh, undermined. So, so the statutory rights otherwise protected on, under the Act can now be um, removed from interpretation and nuance under the law in favor of an on-off switch, which I think is, is a disservice to, to the law and to Canadians. So once a lock is placed on it, your your uh, statutory rights, your user rights, can be can be removed, can be taken away from from Canadians. So that part was was uh, a substantive loss in my view. Um, the Copyright Modernization Act also added a limited liability uh, that that I think is helpful to to libraries in considering that. Uh, for non-commercial infringement, uh, there's only a five thousand, a maximum of five thousand dollars in in damages. So that gives uh, a little bit of ease to people in terms of, uh, you know, many librarians are not copyright experts, and so we're, you know, we do the we do the best that we can in the in the circumstances with what we know, but then it makes it makes uh, you know mistakes uh, manageable. If, if they ever if they ever happen so so those were important addi additions um, but on the upside so the the TPM the technological protection measures was a, a significant loss but on the upside the addition of education and parody and satire to fair dealing exceptions and and there was a um, 
uh, an addition to the to the section on on people with print disabilities too. Um, so so those were positive. Um, so what was the impact? Uh, this was my first experience of having additional categories added to fair dealing, but I think for librarians overall, we found it very helpful to have education specifically added as a fair dealing purpose. Um, and interestingly, it came along at the same time as the Supreme Court's decision on the Alberta education versus access copyright case, which stressed a user-centric approach to fair dealing. And the Alberta case was based on the pre-2012 Copyright Act. So education was not yet as a considered a fair dealing purpose as enumerated in the Act. But I think the impact, if we think carefully about it, Justice Abella's interpretation links us back to CCH in saying that these allowable purposes should not be given a restrictive interpretation and, and we shouldn't unduly restrict users' rights. So it seems to me that education may have been there all along. And the list of fair dealing purposes after CCH may no longer be considered completely exhaustive. So those are, those are very good outcomes of, of 2012. And as the Supreme Court says, the Copyright Act is about balancing the rights of rights holders with those of users. And it's important um, that the scales be balanced when we come to education, because that's a very pressing societal goal. So where we find ourselves today with educational, with rights holders attacking education, uh, educational institutions and libraries for our support and our, our, our work in interpreting and, and making use of those fair dealing exceptions, we're part of that lobbying campaign from rights holders that, that seems to be exaggerating and misrepresenting the situation. And their ultimate goal is to have education removed from the list. More than a decade past those reforms that, that you're talking about. Now, I, I do want to focus a bit on the impact because the CFLA argues that there are hundreds of millions of dollars in access and subscription fees that are that are now being spent. I mean, this sounds like uh, what should be a good news story. That that despite some of the claims that we see being made, in fact, it sounds like there's a massive amount of spending that is going on, even with these reforms and with the Supreme Court of jurisprudence that we've talked about. Can you expand a little bit on on the spending that does take place, the licensing that does happen by libraries and by education, and and what do you think that means? In our statement, CFLA said those hundreds of millions of dollars in access and subscription fees paid by libraries should be going to authors for the, of the licensed works. Copyright is not part of that transaction, and tweaking the Copyright Act won't change the economic plight of Canadian authors. So the rights holders and access copyright are complaining to the government about lost revenue, pointing to the 2012 amendment that includes education. So Given what we said earlier about the Alberta and access copyright case, it may have nothing to do with the educational purpose of fair dealing. The point the libraries are trying to make is that we continue to pay for content in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But the market's changed. Research libraries buy very few print books. Almost all the libraries buy electronic copies of, and the reprographic permissions are bundled into the licenses when we buy those digital copies. So there's no need for a blanket license. 
the impact of CCH and the 2012 uh, Copyright Amendment Modernization Act is that libraries now deal with copyright as a matter of course, and we're fairly conversant with a fair dealing analysis. And when required, we know how to purchase a reprographic license for single works. So during the INDU copyright review, so that was the five-year review of the Copyright Act, CFLA appeared before the Parliamentary Commons Committee, and we appeared at the same time as the Writers Union and the and other Canadian publishing association representatives. So they went on about the lost revenue, and we continue to say how much money we spend. So they're saying that the money is lost, or they're not getting it, and we're spending more and more money. And it's verifiable, it's factual, we can show that. Um, so the, the parliamentary committee was trying to find out where the lost revenue went. And so, so it stands to reason that the libraries are paying them for the paying for access, paying for the content, and the rights holders are not seeming to get it, to get that money. So what's happening in, in the intermediary space? What is what's going on there? The problem is not with the libraries. We are spending the money. And the problem is not with the fair use exception. The problem may be the way creators are being paid, and that is not a copyright issue. So the rights holders and the representatives are pointing the finger at libraries and educational institutions as the culprit for the missing money and because, and because of the users' rights that are enshrined in the Copyright Act. And CFLA does not agree. So we can turn our, back, uh, turn our minds back to access copyright in the CCH case, and they said the same thing in 2004 about the loss of revenue due to the copying of the Great Library. And the Supreme Court noted then, and I think in subsequent cases, that the evidence has not been tendered to show that. Okay, so we've got a lack. I mean, I think that's a really good summary of where we're at. They're just, despite the claims, there just isn't strong evidence that at the end of the day sustains any, even frankly, even a cursory investigation about what's actually taking place. And as you suggest, significant spending taking place. Uh, it's not that there isn't licensing happening. It's not that fair dealing has replaced licensing. Uh, if anything, there's a lot of licensing. I think an important point you just made that for those that don't follow closely, might not fully appreciate is that the kind of licenses, the so-called reprographic or copying licenses that used to exist presupposes you already had the materials and now you're making copies of them. We've seen a shift to one in which licenses provide the actual access to those materials and then also permit that copying or dissemination of those works to students or to others to take place. So it, it's 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 been a game changer in terms of both access and distribution. Uh, and of course, no surprise that people would spend their money there as opposed to spending for the right to copy materials when people aren't even typically spending are spending less and less on the physical copies. So, so why don't we why, why don't we pick up where where you just ended off just now? So we know that spending is higher than ever before by libraries, and we see it from education, of course, as well. We know that that copyright is not out of line with what is found elsewhere. We see similar kinds of exceptions in many other jurisdictions, and yet the attacks that you've been describing have continued. So you're saying that that the problem here isn't a copyright, that in fact the spending is taking place and our copyright law is pretty consistent with what you find elsewhere. So so what is it, do you think? And what kind of solutions does CFLA have in mind to address what 
is according to some of the authors groups a problem as they say spent as they say they're not receiving funding you say spending and have evidence to suggest spending is happening uh, what kind of solutions or how can we go about trying to address the seeming disconnect what solutions do we propose copyright is not as you say copyright is not out of line what which with what is found elsewhere and yet these attacks continue um so, and they have been going on for a long time. Uh, Michael, I don't know if you remember, we were on a panel together over 20 years ago with Charlie Angus at the Royal Ontario Museum, chaired by Olivia Chow. And I remember Access Copyright at that time accused me of theft. Uh, I, I remember it well and, and was quite taken aback. So it's just a long continuum of this. So when we look at that, it is, when we know that it's not a copyright issue, what is it? Well, I think there are some solutions, and I think it's good to have input from a lot of uh, a lot of fronts. So, CFLA and Carl jointly submitted a brief to Canadian Heritage in 2018 that made a few recommendations about how uh, the government could respond to to some of these the gaps that they were the the rights holders were pointing to but was not the fault of copyright or the fault of libraries not spending enough money so we we talked about um the opportunity to have a, a rights revision uh part of the the in the copyright act so that after a certain period of time we suggested 25 years that um, the economic viability of a of a work that is has been published more than 25 years ago is is quite small and is mostly ignored by publishers. So to have those rights revert to the author to remarket them or to do something else with them is something that could be considered. And then we also suggested that um, direct forms of funding for uh, for for creators could be uh, ramped up. So we already have things like uh, Canada Council grants. We have the Canada Book Fund. Uh, the public lending right is also something that could be uh, advanced and 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 extended. So that and other there are other ideas that are out there that maybe the the creator from the creator community. But these are some of the things that we thought that people could uh, that we would support that could go some distance in helping bridge that gap because as you say you know the markets change the way the the content is handled and the aggregators have changed and and that's something that that you know you can't in 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 that environment you can't keep offering the same uh blanket license for sale when there's no market for a blanket license so so in the absence of that model, that model is outdated. Something else has to happen to bridge it. And certainly uh, it would be a worthwhile endeavor for the government of Canada to support its creators. Okay. So there are solutions out there that, that can help address support for creators uh, and they need not involve changes to copyright, which is, which is you suggest uh, really the, even the many of the claims that we're seeing are really based on, uh, on at times, misinformation, if we're being candid about it, in terms of what the law itself actually says. Why don't I conclude with this? The CFLA took a stand and, I suppose unsurprisingly, although unfortunately, was promptly criticized by authors' groups. What, what do you see coming next? You know, we certainly have had some groups that have, have stayed relatively quiet 
on the sidelines of the copyright debate, so to speak, in Canada? Do you think we need more engagement on these issues? Do we think we need the government to pay more attention to this? Do we need to see this continue to play out the way the way it has with the kind of spending that you've been talking about? Uh, what do you see as some of the, the next steps? So CFLA took a position uh, on a, I don't know if I want to call it a debate right now. It seemed like very one-sided positioning of the user's rights. And the writer's union took note, it seems that they were unaware of the position of libraries on user's rights and the public interest, even though we've been in the same room on the debates in parliamentary committees. So I'd like to say yes, that libraries need to engage more actively in copyright policy advocacy. Libraries, archives, and museums, and educational institutions represent the public interest in copyright, and we need to be there advocating for balance. And um, so our positions often hit us against paid lobbyists on the rights holder side. And while our positions are compelling, the sheer volume of rights holder messages is really hard to supplant completely. So we produce statements and position papers on uh, controlled digital lending, secondary publishing rights, contract override, ebooks, uh, a whole range of 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 issues and um we you know there's a cadre i think of brilliant librarians across the country and on the cfla copyright committee who have significant expertise in those specialties one of the things that made the cfla public statement notable was that you had a library education group speaking out stating facts into uh, uh, into an issue that has, as you suggest, has been pretty one-sided, not one-sided in terms of what the facts are, not one-sided in terms of where the law is at, not one-sided in terms of the reality of what governments have done over the last couple of decades with respect to copyright, but one-sided in terms of the lobbying and in terms of the, the attempt to influence significant change and an undermining of the work of both previous governments and the decisions of the Supreme Court of Canada. So in some ways what makes it notable is that, you know, there is someone speaking out. So the difficulty for for us from CFLA's perspective, and I know other library organizations have tried it, is that we're shut out, that people that, well, thank you, you may be interested in this perspective. And in the, the position of libraries and archives, uh, and museums and educational institutions and what our experience is in in managing and 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 interpreting uh, the copyright act for our societal role but there isn't you know to maybe to cult, maybe our next step is to try to cultivate that interest in the news media because we are being shut out there their repeated attempts have been rebuffed from us to articulate that, no, we don't agree with it. This, there's another uh, position or there is more information to be considered. It isn't a linear issue. It's a very complex social policy issue. So, so it can't be just one thing is the culprit. And if you fix that, everything else is going to be resolved. Yeah, no, and, and you know, I think that's a perfect way to end it. And it's a, an incredibly important point. You could... Uh, and anyway, I think it would be incredible. It would be incredibly harmful. You could make changes to the Copyright Act tomorrow. It wouldn't change the licensing practices that exist right now, unless somehow you were mandating that public institutions spend and require students to spend more money on a license that isn't 
really necessary and doesn't reflect current practices. And so there are many other issues that are at play. Uh, Victoria, I want to thank you both for the work that you've been doing and the attempts to try to raise awareness around this and for taking the time to to come on the podcast and explain, uh, I think, in really important detail uh, what's actually taking place, what prompted uh, the CFLA to speak out on the issue and what many who are concerned with these issues can be doing as we as we proceed with this in the coming weeks and months. Well, Michael, thank you very much for your interest and for the invitation to join you. It's been a great pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.